A dramatic and important transition took place in Jesus' ministry in Mark 8.27. And I didn't mention it at the time when we were studying that passage because there were so many other things going on in the text that needed to be examined that we simply didn't have time to talk about everything. But Mark 8.27 marks... Jesus' exit from Galilee into the regions of Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles to the north of the city of Bethsaida on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, situated at the foot of Mount Hermon, which was the most likely site of the transfiguration. Jesus did not return again to Galilee, which had been the locus for most of his ministry, except in this particular passage, to pass through on his way to Jerusalem. This exit from Galilee also marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. From this point on, Jesus is almost exclusively focused upon two goals. Number one, an intensive time of training for his disciples. And number two, the long final trek to Jerusalem. Now it is true that on a number of occasions Jesus will be interrupted by the needs of the individual, like the passage we studied last week, the father with the demonized son, or uh, the blind man of Jericho, or by the needs of the crowd, as we'll see in the weeks to come, but at no point From this time on in the gospel, does Jesus seek out the same kind of public ministry to which he's given himself in each of the previous eight chapters? Not until he arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 11 for the triumphal entry. This intensive time of discipleship training is bracketed by three different predictions of Jesus' passion. Chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9 and verse 31, and chapter 10 and verses 33 and 34, each of which are followed by an extended teaching section on the meaning of discipleship, with each teaching section provoked by some instance of complete misunderstanding on the part of the disciples of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, we've already examined the first such section from chapter 8, 31 to the end of the chapter in verse 38. Today, following the transfiguration, following the account that we studied last week in, uh, of Jesus' healing of the demon-possessed boy, we come to the second such section. In verse 31, Jesus for a second time predicts his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And then for the second time, he launches into an extended period of discussion on the meaning of discipleship. Once again, provoked by a misunderstanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ on the part of the disciples. We'll see them discussing among themselves who is the greatest And we'll see John coming to Jesus and complaining because somebody who's not among their number is casting out demons in Jesus' name. All right, so we find ourselves this morning in the middle of Jesus' last march to Jerusalem, a march which began at the Mount of Transfiguration and concludes at the Mount of Crucifixion. 
It's a journey that's, that's rather a study in contrasts. It begins in glory upon Mount Hermon where Jesus was transfigured in radiance before the eyes of Peter and James and John and they heard the voice of the majestic glory affirming Jesus' divine identity. This is my beloved Son. But it's a journey that concludes in suffering and humiliation on the top of another mount, this time Golgotha, where Jesus was stripped and beaten and scourged beyond recognition, nailed to a cross, and this time utterly forsaken by the Father. We remember his anguished cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is a journey that will once again culminate in glory when Jesus is raised to life on the third day and exalted to the Father's right hand with all rule and authority. Now at this halfway point of Mark's gospel, we have passed out of Jesus' public ministry and we've entered into his passion. A journey that will take us from his transfiguration to his crucifixion and then to his resurrection and beyond. When we crossed Mark 8.27, we began to tread upon holy ground in Scripture. Now, before they reached Jerusalem, Jesus has much to teach his disciples about what it means for him to be the Messiah and for them and us to be his followers. The disciples desperately needed these lessons to prepare them for the ministry and for the sufferings which was to come, and so do we. The second teaching section runs all the way from verse 30 down to verse 50 and contains what I regard to be four distinct lessons in discipleship. But the last lesson, verses 42 to 50, is so vital that I think it merits his own sermon, and we will touch on that next week. So this morning, we're going to focus upon the first three lessons in discipleship that are found in verses 30 through 41. Each of these three lessons in discipleship is relevant to us this morning because each combats an ever-pressing danger that faces the church in every age, and I know for a fact faces this church today. So these are relevant lessons in discipleship, relevant to every person who sits here in one way or another. Let me tell you what those three dangers are that I see that face our church, which this text particularly addresses. Here's danger number one. We might call it mission drift. That is drifting from the core message and the core mission of the church. Now this happens whenever a church becomes impassioned about a cause. All right, it might be a political cause. It might be a social justice cause. It might be a theological cause. But in becoming so focused and so impassioned on that cause, what ends up happening is that the church forgets that its core message is the gospel and its core mission rather is the proclamation of that gospel. Now the same danger awaits the individual who forgets to keep the main thing the main thing and instead begins to make secondary matters primary. So as a church and as disciples, we need to remain ever-focused upon the gospel. 
we are first and foremost disciples of a crucified and risen Messiah. And Jesus will not let us forget it in chapters 8, 9, and 10. The second danger that we face, we could identify as a mentality of ladder climbing. That is the desire that is inherent within our sinful hearts for position, power, and prestige within the church. Against this mindset, Jesus reminds his disciples that greatness in the kingdom of God is defined in a vastly different way than it is in the kingdoms of this world. He who would be great in the kingdom of God must be a servant in the church. The third danger we might identify as a separatist mentality. That is, the notion that I have the corner on truth, anyone who disagrees with me is wrong, and furthermore, they probably aren't a Christian at all. Now against that mindset, Jesus reminds us that the kingdom of God is much broader than our narrowly defined theological and denominational boundaries. All right, those are the three dangers which face our church, and those are the three dangers which Jesus directly addresses in today's text. So let's take these one at a time, and let's be instructed this morning by the Master. The first lesson to be learned this morning is that true discipleship is gospel-centered. Now, this was so important for Jesus that he says essentially the same thing on three different occasions during this last trek to Jerusalem. He said it first in Mark 8.31, while among the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Mark tells us, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Then in Mark 9.31, Mark says, They went on from there and they passed again through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And then again in Mark 10.33, while on the last leg of their uh, trek to Jerusalem, now as they're nearing the city of Jericho, Mark says, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Three separate occasions once at the beginning, once at the middle, and once at the end of this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples plainly what was to happen to him there. And on not one of these three occasions did the disciples understand him nor believe him. 
So firmly entrenched was their conception of this triumphant Messiah who would defeat the Gentiles and restore the kingdom to Israel. They simply could not make sense out of these three passion predictions. Yet they knew that it was of utmost importance to Jesus, which is why they were afraid to ask him. Now you will notice that each prediction that I just read for you is remarkably similar in its three essential components. There is a prediction of his sufferings. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Mark chapter 10 fills out what those men will then do to him. They will mock him and spit on him and curse him and scourge him and kill him. Okay? There will be his death, number two. Mark says in Mark 9, 31, and they will kill him. And then there will be a resurrection. And when he is killed, Jesus says, after three days he will rise. But this second passion prediction adds a flavor that was not present in the first. And that's what I want to emphasize this morning. In the first Passion Prediction, Mark 8, 31, Jesus emphasized the necessity of his sufferings. Mark tells us that he was saying to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things. But now, Jesus brings forward a new element to his passion. And that element is God's own action in handing Jesus over to his suffering. You see, when Jesus says in Mark 9.31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over into the hands of men, that verb, delivered over, is what is known as a divine passive, meaning that God is the one who is delivering Jesus over into the hands of men, which tells us something very, very important about Jesus' passion. Jesus is not ultimately the victim of sinful men. Jesus is rather the sacrifice put forward by a loving and gracious and just and holy God. In other words, the death of Jesus, according to the Son of Man in Mark 9.31, will be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, one of the most important chapters in all of the Old Testament, has some very interesting language when it speaks of the cause of the servant's suffering. For instance, Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then later in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. See, the biblical answer to the question of who killed Jesus is God did. God delivered Jesus over into the hands of men. God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And God crushed him beneath the weight of his own righteous wrath. Yes, God used human instruments to accomplish his will. And yes, those human instruments are responsible for their sinful actions, which is why Peter on the day of Pentecost points his finger at the Jews in Jerusalem and says, this Jesus delivered over 
over by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you put to death. But it was in accordance with the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God delivered Jesus over to death. The death of Jesus was God's idea, God's plan, and God's doing. So said the early church, for instance, in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. When they're praying and they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. But why? Why would the Father deliver over and crush his beloved son. Is this, as the charge has been laid at the feet of the church, divine child abuse? Well, no. Because in this handing over, in this crushing of the son by the father, lies the very heart of the Christian faith and the foundation for all true Christian discipleship. Such that if you don't understand this point, you cannot be Jesus' disciple because you don't yet understand the gospel. So I want to take just a moment, I want to try to expound upon this very central truth. And if you walked in here this morning a little fuzzy about what Christianity was all about, listen very, very closely. Our fundamental problem is the righteousness of God. Our fundamental problem is that God is righteous and we are not. And our unrighteousness has placed us under the judgment and the wrath of a righteous and holy God. In his blazing and ferocious justice and righteousness and holiness and wrath, God hates sin. And he hates sin with an infinite commitment to punish it and eradicate it wherever it be found, including in us. Yet, God is merciful and gracious and he desires to show his mercy to sinners to forgive us and to justify us and to reconcile us once again into an eternal relationship with himself. So what we have is in his righteousness, God desires to crush us under the weight of his wrath. That's a real desire burning in God's heart because of his infinite hatred of sin. In his love, God desires to save us from his wrath. That too is a real desire because in his infinite mercy, God loves forgiveness. But how can God do both? 
How can God judge us on the one hand and save us on the other? How can God punish our sins and forgive us our sins? How can God demonstrate his righteous wrath and demonstrate his gracious mercy? See, the problem is is that God's righteousness seems to be at odds with God's mercy. And so what all of the scripture pleads for and begs for and cries out for is some way in which the righteousness and the mercy of God could meet. Some way for God to be both just and the justifier of sinners. And there is a way. And that way was in God's delivering over of his infinitely righteous son to die in the place of unrighteous men. The way of substitution. Substitution, the righteous for the unrighteous, is the heart of the gospel. A substitute must suffer God's wrath in our place. This was foreshadowed throughout the Old Covenant sacrificial system when God accepted the blood of a sacrifice in the place of sinners. But everyone, everyone knows that the blood of bulls and goats is not a fit substitute. It is ultimately insufficient for the task of atonement. For the blood of bulls and goats can never take away the sin of man, says Hebrews 10.4. No, if sinful man is to be saved, then the infinitely righteous man must suffer God's infinite wrath in the place of infinitely unrighteous men. And that is exactly what Jesus did according to the righteous and merciful will of God. God delivered Jesus over to the death and the judgment of the cross. God laid the sins of his people upon Christ. God crushed him under the weight of his wrath. Thus the righteousness of God was satisfied The glory of God was vindicated. God was shown to be the holy God that he is in the judgment of sin. And the mercy of God was free to be poured out upon all those who would repent and trust in him. With no violation of his righteousness, no violation of his justice, and no trampling of his glory. And since the righteousness of God was satisfied through the atoning and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, since it is finished in the death of Jesus, God raised his son up from the dead and made him to be the conscious object of all saving faith, such that if you trust in him, you will be forgiven, and if you don't, you will not. That is the gospel, and that is the foundation of all true discipleship. And that must therefore be the core message and core mission of the church. Everything else is secondary and subservient to that core message and mission. Issues of the the right to life 
ought to concern us. And we ought to be involved in the, in the fighting for unborn children and the, the prophetic denunciation of this selfish and awfully wicked, evil convenience that says that if a child isn't convenient, then it doesn't have a right to exist. That's wretched, and we should stand against it. Yet, Standing for the right to life is but the outworking of a church's gospel proclamation. Standing against racism is something in which the church ought to be involved. We ought to stand up and say, God makes no distinction on the basis of race. All men are made in his image. And God's design, in fact, is that men from every tribe and tongue and race and nation would be gathered around his throne, dressed in white, worshiping the lamb on the last day. God delights in the diversity and equality of the races. Yet, that is but the outworking of the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we let those secondary things become primary, we will lose the primary, and within a generation, we'll lose the secondary. This point has a thousand applications to our church. So let me list all of them. No, I'm kidding. It has application to the kind of sermons we preach. It has application to the kind of songs we sing. It has application to the kind of ministries we offer. It has application to the kind of mission trips we go on. It has application to the kind of missionaries we support. I don't think we ought to be involved in any ministry in which the gospel is not primary. I don't think we ought to be supporting any missionaries who don't hold the gospel to be their primary message and mission. And I don't think we ought to go on any mission trips in which the gospel is not primary. Because it was primary for Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said of John Bunyan, 17th century Baptist and author of Pilgrim's Progress, quote, He had studied our authorized version, the King James Version, till his whole being was saturated with Scripture. And his writings continually make us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the Word of God. That's a disciple. And may that be said of the members of this church. Specifically with reference to the gospel of the sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those members of First Baptist Nixa prick them anywhere and out comes the gospel. I think Jesus would have it to be so because he made, he made the gospel the necessary foundation for all true discipleship. The second lesson to be learned this morning is that true discipleship is service-oriented. This point comes from the rather embarrassing interaction that takes place among the disciples in Capernaum. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. So coming to Capernaum, which had been Jesus' earlier base of operations for his ministry in Galilee, Jesus and his disciples, they enter a house, maybe Peter's house. And maybe the child that Jesus takes and, and places on his knee is Peter's own child. At any rate, Jesus was aware that the, the, the disciples had been preoccupied with a topic of conversation on the way to the house. And he knew what it was, and he didn't like it. And so he called the twelve together, and he confronted them with it. And the disciples show here that they're not entirely obtuse, because evidently it's in their silent shame that they, they knew they'd been discovered. And that's why they didn't answer him a word. Well, it doesn't take much to imagine the way this discussion must have gone. I imagine that Peter took the lead, as Peter seemed to have taken the lead in every other occasion, proudly declaring that he was the leader of the twelve, the greatest among them. After all, hadn't it been he who had first confessed Jesus to be the Christ in Caesarea Philippi? And hadn't it been he that Jesus said would be the rock on which he would build the church? And hadn't it been he who, along with James and John, who had been specially selected out of the rest of you to, to ascend to the Mount of Transfiguration and to behold there the unveiled glory of Christ? And yes, I know that Jesus had instructed them not to tell the others what they had seen until after his resurrection, but do you really think that they would have missed this opportunity? to lord it over them. And besides that, nobody else in Mark's gospel has obeyed Jesus yet when it comes to the command to silence. Then I imagine the others started in, touting their own individual accomplishments, bragging about how many demons they had cast out, how many sick they had healed, how many multitudes they had preached to, how many converts they had baptized. In, entirely forgetting the lesson of the previous section in which the father of the boy with the unclean spirit had brought them to the disciples and they had been entirely unable to cast it out because of their powerless, prayerless lack of faith. And I imagine Jesus listening to all of this going on behind him as he's walking to Capernaum, listening in with a heart of grief as his followers, his friends are just oozing with pride and missing the entire point. Well, in the face of such overwhelming pride and ignorance, Jesus issues a brief but revolutionary maxim. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then to punctuate his point, Jesus took a nearby child and he sat it on his lap and he said, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Those two simple statements speak volumes about the nature of the kingdom of God and therefore the nature of the church. They teach us that Humility is the mark of true greatness and that humility will manifest itself in the service of others. You want to know who are the greatest people in this church? They're the servants. 
If anyone would be first, let him be last of all and the servant of all. Pride of position is so deeply entrenched in our sinful natures, it's woven into the very fabric of our culture. Every, everywhere you look, there is a hierarchy to ascend, there's a ladder to climb, there are levels to achieve, and all too easily, that mentality of the world and the workforce creeps into the church, and it's particularly, I will admit, an endemic in pastors, to whom the Bible does grant real authority, but to whom it grants the authority of a shepherd who serves, not a king who commands. It is an authority that is exercised through loving, faithful service, not domineering lordship, which, by the way, is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 3, 30 years later. Jesus' words had hit home with him, and he'd learned the truth that at this particular period he did not yet know. It is shameful to hear the way some pastors speak. And it's not all that different from the conversation among the disciples here along the way, boasting about whose church is bigger, who's baptized more, who has a seat at the table of convention politics, but we're very, very careful about this sort of thing, and we wrap it all in, in, in humble, spiritual-sounding language. Thank God I baptized more than you last year. But pastoral ministry is not a career ladder, and churches are not rungs on which we climb. Unless you think that this is just a problem for pastors, it's a problem for people. Members. Men sometimes seek leadership not out of a desire to serve the flock, but a desire to rule over the flock, a desire to have a seat at the table. But Jesus says it must not be this way among us. Because when it comes to thinking of ourselves in the church, words like better and best, they don't even apply. That language is foreign to the church. Paul reminds us, what do you have that you did not receive? What's the answer to that question? Nothing. And if you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not? I was talking with Benjamin a few weeks ago about how when I was younger, I, I, was, I was consumed with this insatiable desire to be the best at something. And it really didn't matter what it was. I just wanted there, to be, I wanted there to be something that when people thought of me, they say, hey, you know, Tim, he's the best. And then God made me a pastor where categories like better and best don't even apply. And such comparisons are, in fact, sin. So I constantly am having to guard my heart against such desires, against the, the temptation to compare myself with others. We need to be very, very careful in this church to guard against the temptation of allowing the categories of the world to creep into the church where humility is to be the mark of true greatness and service is to be its fruit. So men in particular, if you find within yourself a desire for leadership in this church, the first thing that I would say is, that's good. 
1 Timothy 3.1 says that's good. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a good work that he desires to do. But the very next thing that I would say is check your heart. Why do you want leadership? Is it to rule or is it to serve? Is it to garner the praise of men or to win the praise of God? Why does Jesus take the child in his lap and make it the center of this acted parable, saying, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What's the connection between verses, verse 35 and verses 36 and 37? I think the connection is this. In the first century world, children were of little account in the eyes of society. They occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder. You know who received children? Women did. Women received children. Women took care of the children. Not, not great men. Great men did not concern themselves with children. Great men concerned themselves with other great men. If a child entered into the home, it was beneath the dignity of a man to welcome that child to receive it, to show it attention. But if a ruler or a rabbi or... or some man held in esteem in the community, if he entered the home, the man would rise to receive him and to welcome him and to show him to his place of honor because great men receive great men because in doing so, it enhances their own greatness in their own eyes and in the eyes of society. Not so within the church. You know, James addresses this very issue in James chapter 2. There was a problem in the church at Jerusalem. They hadn't yet learned this lesson completely. And so James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. You know what that means? That means that anyone who walks through the doors of that church who is rich in faith is a child of God, an heir of the everlasting kingdom, whether or not they are poor in this world, outcast from society, sitting on the bottom rung of the social ladder, despised in the eyes of the rest of this community. They're a king when they walk in here. Those qualities which make men great in the eyes of the world, power, wealth, popularity, charisma, beauty, those qualities are of no account in the eyes of God, and they ought be of no account in the eyes of the church. That's the point of verses 33 to 37. In the kingdom of God, and therefore in the church, we judge by different standards and we are driven by different motivations. We exalt the humble, not the proud. We look to the servants, not those who seek to be served. 
We receive the children, the poor, the weak, the outcast, the despised, and we treat them as heirs of God's everlasting kingdom. That is the way of Christ, and that's the way of his disciples. Third lesson. This time arising from John's question about an unnamed exorcist who did not belong to the apostolic band. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Which I think is a little ironic because John's objection to this man is the very same objection that was so often raised by the scribes and the Pharisees to Jesus. He's not one of us. He's not authorized to do those things. So John's question betrays a suspicion of anyone who claimed to be a follower of Christ who wasn't one of our number. And this kind of elitist, sectarian attitude is still a danger in the church today and one that we in particular need to watch out for. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. Now you'll remember that Jesus spent much of his early ministry in and around Capernaum. And so it would not be surprising if he had disciples there who were not among the twelve who followed him all over Galilee. And evidently, some of these disciples had the power to cast out demons and to perform miracles, what Jesus calls mighty works in verse 39, and to do so in Jesus' name. But John and the other disciples were suspicious of anyone who was not of their number, and and they therefore tried to put a stop to this unauthorized ministry. So Jesus responds with a rebuke. Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us here at First Baptist Nixa not to hinder those who minister in Christ's name because if they are not against him, they are for him and therefore they are with us. Now, verse 40 presents something of a problem. And some of you have already guessed it. So doesn't Jesus say exactly the opposite thing somewhere else? Whoever's not with us is against us. Yes, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever whoever does not gather with me scatters. But the difference between those two statements lies in their context and in their pronouns. Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 12 comes in the aftermath and in the context of the Pharisees accusing him of being in league with the devil. The issue at hand in that context was their opposition of him. To those who do not believe in Christ, who seek to, to, to hinder Christ's ministry, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And if you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. But in Mark 9, the context is totally different. This man in Mark 9 was not against Jesus. He was not disparaging Jesus. He was not in opposition to Jesus. He was ministering in the name of Jesus. He had allied himself with Christ against the kingdom of darkness. It's apples and oranges. 
And so regarding those who are on the side of Jesus, fighting against Satan, Jesus says, if they're not against us, they're for us. Anyone fighting on the side of Christ, uh, anyone avoiding or aiding, rather, in the advance of his kingdom, they're on our side. They're our friends, they're our co-laborers, they are our co-gatherers in the harvest. And no work, no matter how mighty, like the casting out of demons, or menial, like the giving of a cup of cold water, will fail to gain its due reward. So what do we learn from this final paragraph? How does this apply to our church? I think this is a reminder to guard ourselves against the danger of becoming overly divisive and sectarian and elitist, frankly, in our associations with and affirmations of other Christians and other churches. Now, I said this was a particular struggle for this church. Let me get more personal. It's a particular struggle for me because I hold to my theological convictions with a lot of passion and with a lot of confidence, sometimes, frankly, bordering on arrogance. Therefore, it's not easy for me to look at somebody who disagrees with me in a secondary matter, which I tend to feel as if it's an essential matter, and and to link arms with them and to show them the honor that Jesus would have me to show. Now, I wouldn't trade this church and its passion and theological conviction for any other church in the world. So I don't want you to hear me to say, well, we should just hold our convictions less strongly. No! No! We should hold our convictions strongly and regard others who agree with us on the essentials of the gospel with love and charity. We can do both. We need not view other churches or other Christians with suspicion because they don't hold to the same secondary, non-essential convictions as we do. If we agree on the gospel, namely that God sent his son into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to save sinners by his sufferings, death, and resurrection, and that that salvation is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then we are on the same side. Now, by those categories, there are churches in Nixa that are not on our side. But there are others that are. And they deserve our love, and they deserve our support, and they deserve our charity, and they deserve our embrace of their ministries. What they don't deserve is our suspicion and our snide remarks. Now, that does not mean that we need to, therefore, tear down our theological barriers and all worship together every Sunday morning. No, 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 no. We're not going to agree on issues of how we ought to worship, how we ought to preach, 
What is the relationship between the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility? How does that apply to evangelism? The differences between us are real, and they really call for our own distinct congregations. But we need not view those other churches and the Christians who inhabit those other churches and make up those other churches and their evangelistic ministries with suspicion because they're not Reformed Baptists like we are. If they believe and preach the gospel of Christ, then we're on the same team. And they'll be Reformed Baptists in heaven one day. even the Methodists. Now, there is more that could be said on that point, but we'll, we'll dive into what that means next week in Connect. So let me, let me sum up what we've learned today, and we're going to conclude this service with a time of prayer and meditation. Let me conclude by summarizing these three lessons. Number one, we've learned today that true discipleship is gospel-centered. The gospel of the sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the plan of God to save sinners by faith alone is the foundation of true discipleship and it is our core message and mission and may we never stray from it. Number two, we've learned that true discipleship is service-oriented. That humility is the mark of true greatness in the kingdom of heaven and in the church. And number three, we've learned that true discipleship is not elitist and it is not sectarian. Anyone who believes and proclaims the true gospel is on our side, even if we disagree on on secondary and non-essential theological matters, which are still important, but not essential. We can, therefore, and must love them and thank God for their ministry.